So we are jumping back into the Gospel of John today. For some of you, that's going to be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Others of you are like, what do you mean back into the Gospel of John? Because uh, we've not been in it for a couple of months. We were last in John in November. So it's been a minute. And uh, we've been working all the way, our way through the Gospel um, since about the beginning of last year. And so uh, we're back in it today, and I am not going to attempt to recap it, okay? Because this is part 27, all right? And, none of, and nobody wants that, okay? If you want to go and check all of it out, you can head back. Uh, you can go to our website, hopecommunityonline.org. All the messages are there under a like, playlist. You can find the playlist of Gospel of John. Same thing on YouTube. Go to Hope Community Minerva. Search that on YouTube. You'll find our church page. You can subscribe there because that would be great. Uh, and you'll find the Gospel of John there as well. But I'm not going to recap all of it. We're going to be in John chapter 9 today. If you've got a Bible, you want to follow along, there's Bibles in the back. I'm going to have them up here on the screen as well. The verse, there's going to be a verse on the screen, not a Bible on the screen. That'd just be weird, the picture of a Bible. Um, and, uh, but, but just get us going in the same direction to set some context. So we're all kind of tracking along on the same page. Just a, a quick overarching picture of John. John is one of four gospel accounts that we have. So four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and John is one of the apostles or the disciples of Jesus uh, who is writing his kind of eyewitness account of what he saw and experienced. John's one of the people who are closest to Jesus, and he gets to the end of his life, and he's like, I'm going to write this down. Uh, and John has, a, has an agenda in what he writes, though. He's not just recording information. He wants to record information to get you and I to a point when we get to the end of his gospel to, to decide something about Jesus. And so John gives an overarching statement of his gospel uh, in chapter 20. He says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. And so he's like, not even scratching the surface on everything that Jesus said and did. This is just a picture, but what I've written here is written so that you may believe. And he says two things, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this is John's agenda. He says, I want you to believe a couple things about Jesus. Number one, that he's the Messiah. And this is this idea that he is the God's, God's promised one, the Redeemer, God's final king that was predicted throughout the Old Testament that the Jewish Messiah would come and do something for the entire world. Right? He's like, I want you to see Jesus as that person. And also that he's not just human because no human could, could be that, that person that God was calling them to be. No person could redeem everybody else. No person could show up and fix what was broken. And so God says, I will show up myself and I will do for humanity what humanity cannot do for itself. And so Jesus shows up 100% man, 100% God to be the one that was promised. And John says, I want you to, to come to this conclusion and to, to decide for yourself. And it's almost like Jesus is on trial through the gospel of John. And we get to the end and he says, okay, now what do you think about this? Who do you think Jesus is and what is your response to the claims that I'm making? That's John's agenda for his gospel so that you and I can have life. And so everything that John writes and records for us is written with this in mind. He's trying to take us somewhere. And that includes what we're going to look at, the passage that we're going to look at today, that it is written with this in mind. He wants us to see something about who Jesus is, who this Messiah is, what God looks like when he shows up. And the text we're going to be in today actually kind of forces us into an uncomfortable place, this tension of, okay, there's something that's wrong with the world, so why do bad things happen? Why is there suffering? And what's the solution? God going to do something about it? This is a question that we often ask, and this is a tension within the Christian faith, right? We're like, God is good, and God is loving, and God is just, and yet there's pain, and there's evil, and there's suffering. So how do I take those two things and make it make sense? The passage that we're in today is going to kind of get into that. So we're going to be in John chapter 9. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. We'll get about uh, 12 verses covered today. So here we go. John chapter 9 verse 1 says, As he, talking about Jesus, was passing by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. So it wasn't an accident that happened to this guy. There wasn't a sickness that came upon him. 
He was just born with being, being blind. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so right off the bat, in this account, we are confronted with our question. Why does bad stuff happen? Why is this man suffering? Why is he blind? And who's to blame for it? Now, before we jump into actually kind of unpacking this, I want to talk about a couple of things. Uh, number one is, is this idea that I think the, 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 the Christian faith and the story of Jesus provides answers to those questions uh, about like reconciling this idea of there's, there's pain, there's evil, and there's suffering, and yet there's a good and loving God. Why is there pain? What's he doing about it? That the message of Jesus, the Christian faith, offers an answer to that that, that I think is it's coherent, it's logical, it makes sense, it's reasonable, but that does not mean it's emotionally satisfying. And I just want you to hear that before we jump into this today, that when we get to the end of this text, we're not going to go, wow, I feel so much better about pain and suffering. That there is really no answer that makes us feel better. Like whenever we ourselves are experiencing pain and suffering or someone that we know or love is experiencing pain and suffering, or whenever we just see the world around us in the state that it's in, there is no, there's nothing that makes us go, oh, I feel great now. But Jesus, the way of Jesus does at least give us a framework for saying, I, even though I feel awful about this, I can understand it. So that's the first thing I just want to say. And before we jump into this text today, I want to, I want to kind of unearth some of our assumptions about the nature of, like, human existence. That sounded way deeper than it's actually going to be. Don't worry, okay? It's like, wow, that sounded, yeah, no. Anyway, um, but, but there's this idea, like, we make some assumptions about the reality that we experience, especially when we ask questions like, well, uh, why is there pain and suffering? And that's usually asked from this position of saying, well, we assume that life should be good. That, that, that there should be health, that there should be wholeness, that people should flourish. We assume that things should operate in a certain way. And so when we are confronted with pain or suffering or um, something, that, that, that discomfort, when we're con uh, confronted with confusion about life, we assume then that that is wrong, that that's bad, that, 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 that somehow it shouldn't be that way. And by the way, like, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think like it should be good, there should be flourishing, there should be joy, there should be hope, there should be goodness, and that when pain and death and suffering and evil, when they come into the picture, there's something wrong and there's something broken. I agree with that, but what I want us to think about for a minute is why do we have that assumption? The Christian perspective would say, well, the reason it should be good is because this is God's creation and he is good and he is loving and everything was meant to flow out of his goodness and flow out of his love. And it's meant to be a reflection of the ultimate source of good and the ultimate source of love. And so when something is amiss, it's a reflection of that. And out of the assumption that things should be good and that they're not, we also have some assumptions um, around, well, okay, well, what's the problem then and what's the solution? Like, we, we recognize that something's broken, that something's not right. There is a problem. Can we pinpoint what the problem is, and is there a solution to the problem? And I just want to kind of, like, sit in that for a minute and just say, like, every single worldview has to answer that question. You know, sometimes, and for good reason, like, Christianity, like, this is a, a point of, like, contention or even, like, well, what about, you know? It's like, well, you claim God is good and God is loving, so why is there pain and suffering in the world? That is not a unique question that only the Christian faith has to answer. Because all of us, regardless of a faith tradition, regardless of, uh, of maybe no faith, whether different religions, agnostic, atheistic, all of us live in the same world, and we all experience pain and suffering. And so how does any worldview answer the question, okay, what is that, and what can be done about it. And here we see the disciples 
trying to work through that. Like they recognize that something isn't as it should be. This man has been born blind. It should not be that way. There's, there's a problem here, and they're going to try to pinpoint what the problem is exactly. And so they ask the question, okay, well, we see that things aren't as they should be. So Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? We, we see that there's a disconnect, that there's a problem here. So one of two things has to be, be true. Somebody sinned. It was either this guy or his parents. It's his fault. And because he was born that way, like it wasn't something that came about later in life, maybe it's his parents' fault. Maybe they did something, you know, whenever, uh, when, when in, in their life, or they did something while his mother was pregnant, and it was just like, it's a punishment for them. There's this assumption that's made. And this question that they ask actually reflects a popular view at that time, um, that all suffering was a result of punishment for some sort of sin. Like if, if something is going, if something is going wrong with you, in your life or going wrong with you, that means you've, uh, you have sinned in some way and you're being punished by God or punished by the gods. And this is still kind of a, a way of thinking that is, is even, you know, around today. The idea of like karma and what goes around comes around that if I live a good life, good things should happen to me. Um, and I can remember even, uh, there, there have been times in my life where I had this kind of thinking and it's like, I, I can remember distinctively in high school, and I was not very serious about my faith. I was like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but so what? That doesn't really mean anything. But yet, my friends and I were superstitious about stuff like this. If we had like a game coming up that weekend, because I played sports and stuff, we're like, don't do anything bad, don't do anything wrong, because we need to win. And if we do something bad, God's going to punish us. As if like, God cares if we won the football game, okay? We must have done lots of bad stuff because we didn't win that often, okay? But it was just like, I'm like, but like, but there was this thinking of like, no, we gotta, we gotta do good, like so, so that bad things don't happen. And it's a funny story from like my adolescence, but a lot of times even as adults we think like this, right? Where it's just like, oh, like if something bad is going wrong, maybe I've done something uh, to deserve that. And so that's the question that the, the disciples are asking here: Whose fault is this? Somebody has to be to blame. And we still see this working out in our conversations today. Again, everyone recognizes that there's something wrong with the world. You don't have to be a person of faith to think that. You don't have to be a Christian to think that. We look around and we see, we see death and we see violence and we see war and we see bloodshed and there's poverty and there's suffering and there's uh, famine and, and disease. It's like there's something that's wrong. We would all agree on that. Something's broken. Uh, the Christian faith as followers of Jesus, we would call that, that that's sin. Like the one word that would say what is wrong with the world is this idea of sin that has kind of infected everything. And then, much like the disciples here, there's discussion over, well, whose fault is it? And whose fault it is is going to determine what we should do about it. And so we'll argue about things like, well, is it his fault or her fault or is it their upbringing? Do they carry the responsibility or is this the way that they were raised? You know, the whole, is it nature that they act this way or is it nurture? Did they grow into this? And we'll fight and have arguments over, is this an issue of individual sin? Like, sin is just an individual thing. Or is there such thing as corporate sin and collective sin? We'll argue over questions of, well, this is about personal responsibility. The answer to solve the world is if you take personal responsibility and I take personal responsibility and everybody just takes personal responsibility, or is there an aspect of systemic injustice and systemic sin? We fight over these things and argue over these things, much like the disciples. Whose fault is this? We need to know. And Jesus does the Jesus-y thing, and I, I just love this about him when he's teaching because they think they're going to get the straightforward kind of answer from Jesus. And he's like, well, that's a good question. Here's the answer. Neither. <laughs> Both of your options are wrong, right? Like, you want to know, is it, is it A or B? You want to fit me into a category. You want me to play your game. And, like, I'm on a different field. Like, I'm in a different arena. Like, we're just going with the sports metaphors today for some reason. But he's like, like I'm just, like, you guys are categorically off. And I want to create a new category for you. And, and so often we try to do this with Jesus, right? 
Like, I've got A or B. These are the categories, and Jesus, I want to make you fit into one of mine. I want to drag you, Jesus, over into my categories and my ways of seeing life. And Jesus is like, that's not how following me works. I don't come into your little categories and ways of viewing the world. You come into mine. And I'm going to create a new category for you. So it's neither, uh, neither his parents, um, neither him nor his parents sin. And now this isn't to say, like, that they didn't ever sin, that they were perfect people. Uh, number one, there are no perfect people. The, the Christian view would say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And again, you don't have to be a Christian to, to believe that, like, there is no perfect person. We've all got our issues. And Jesus is talking in, you know, with his disciples who are these Jewish men, and they were very familiar with the idea of sin. Like they had a whole temple system and sacrificial system and the priests like to, 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 to fix like the, the, the issue of sin to them. And so it's not an idea of like, well, they were perfect. They never sinned. But he's answering the question that they asked. Whose fault is this? Neither. The, like the, the guy's sin nor his parents' sin are the res- Like that's not why he's blind. We have the wrong categories. Neither this man nor, nor, uh, nor, man nor his parents sinned. And, and Jesus doesn't really offer a very clear third explanation. He doesn't say, well, this is exactly why this guy is blind. He's going to go on and talk a little bit about how this is an opportunity for God to work and for God to do something. And while Jesus doesn't, like, explain fully in this this text, well, here's exactly what happened and why this man is born blind. When we read through the biblical narrative, Scripture points to the reality of the the impact and effects of sin in the world. And so it could be summed up, the the biblical story, when it comes to sin, could be summed up this way, that all suffering comes from original sin, but not all suffering comes from personal sin. Like, there is this idea of original sin. When sin entered into the world, everything broke. And so, like, God, God creates a beautiful creation. It is good. It is full of his goodness and his love. And he puts people there. It's a, it's a place that is made for human flourishing. He's like, I want you to be my image bearers. I want you to spread this flourishing. But here's the thing. You, you need to define. You need to use God's wisdom of defining good and evil. And humanity goes, and it's like, no, we're going to do it our own way. We want to define good and evil on our own terms, and it's, it's this picture of, of them eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when that happens, creation breaks and sin comes into the world. That's what we call the fall. It's found in Genesis 3, but Genesis 3 through 11 is actually one extended fall narrative. Because you read Genesis 3 through 11, it's just increasing evil and sin and destruction on the earth and things like are getting worse and worse and worse. And you're like, what is happening? But it does paint this complex picture of why things are the way they are. Even in the, 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 the fall in Genesis 3, it's not just as simple as humans made a, a decision to disobey God. Yes, there's that. There's a personal responsibility, but there's also the influence of supernatural spiritual evil. There is this serpent character that is there kind of moving the story along. And then when we see the fallout of sin and God starts saying what the ripple effects of this are going to be, it's not just, well, you're going to have some personal, like, individualistic consequences. It's no, like, there's something inside of you that breaks and shame comes into the picture. And there's something in your interpersonal relationships among humans that breaks and, and there's this spiraling out of control. And not only that, and this is one that we kind of gloss over a lot of times, like, the creation itself gets broken, that there's like environmental turmoil, like the world that we live in is broken. And he says that, hey, the ground is now going to produce thistles and thorns. This picture of like, it's, it's, it's all broken now. You know, it's, uh, I, I, I joked in the first service, I've not made a, a, a Tolkien reference in a while. And I have to at least like once, you know, once every other month or so. And so like there's this scene in The Hobbit, which is not as good as The Lord of the Rings. We all know that, all right? But there's this scene in which they're about ready to enter into to Mirkwood and someone says, a darkness lies upon that forest. 
and the, the minute that the dwarves go into Mirkwood, if you've not seen the movie, just bear with me, okay? You should, you should, all right? You should see it. But the minute that they go into Mirkwood, the, the darkness that is on that forest starts to, like, infect them. And they, they can't see straight, and there's confusion, and, like, it, it's just a darkness that starts seeping into them as they travel through the forest. This is the picture of what it is to exist in our world, that there is a darkness upon it. When we ask, well, why do bad things happen and why is there suffering? Is it personal? Is it corporate? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it systemic? Is it individual? The answer that scripture gives is, is yes. It's all of the above. That, that the moment that we are born, we are born as fallen and broken people into a fallen and broken world. And the second we take our first breath, it's like we start to be infected by it. We've stepped into Mirkwood. And so when Jesus is like, hey, you guys want to know who sinned, this man or his parents, that's, it's not that simple. It's a lot more complex than that. The narrative of scripture paints this story that we are caught up in and it's dark and it, there's twists and there's turns. And that's what's going on. But yet, in spite of that, that's not really what Jesus wants to see in the passage because he's not gonna spend a whole lot of time saying, well, this is exactly why this happened. He's gonna focus on something else. He's gonna focus on what God is doing about it. And so Jesus says next of this guy's blindness, right? It's not that him or his parents sin, but this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night is coming when no one can work. And so he's like, guys, you, you, again, you have the wrong categories. You have the wrong picture of God and faith and the world and how all of this works. This is not God being like, oh, you did something wrong, zap. You know, like we have, the, God is not petty. God is not small like that. God is not waiting for you to mess up just so he can smite you. That's not how this works. It's more complex than that. He's not punishing this man for his sin or his parents' sin. God did not do this, but as we're going to see, that God can actually use this for good. And so this is what's happening here. And still, I will, I will, I will give you, that maybe you're reading this, you're like, this is still, this still is hard for me. Because we read this, and like, well, this came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. And sometimes, like, the second part of verse 3 there, this came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. It almost sounds like, like are, are you saying that God is letting me suffer so he can look good? Like, he's letting me suffer so that he can work. Like, as if he can't work in my life unless it's painful. And, and I want to just kind of say two things about this, because there's different ways of, of approaching this, and scholars have different takes on this. And, and one answer might be maybe, that, that, that there is a mystery to how God works, and we do not understand everything. And as specifically as it relates to suffering, if you're familiar with the with scripture, there's this, like, this book of wisdom in the Old Testament called Job, and it kind of has a very similar feeling to this. All of Job is going through terrible things, and all of his friends are like, whose fault is it? Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned. You must have done something wrong. And then finally, God shows up, and, and God basically paints this picture of Job. You are so small, and like, I see the whole picture of what's going on in the world. And Job's like, okay. And we never get an answer for really why Job suffered. It's just like, oh, all right. And there's like, so there is an aspect of mystery. So maybe God allows it. But there is also something else that's going on that I found particularly helpful that I want to point out to you. And again, like, we like to just talk about things and like, we'll come to our own conclusions on, on some of these ways. There's different ways of viewing text. The church has seen things throughout history. But uh, a couple of scholars were particularly helpful um, in this area as I was prepping for this message. And they pointed out this idea that verses 3 and 4 that we have on the screen here, there's a couple of things about it. Number one, in our English translations, I'm reading from the CSB, uh, the phrase, this came about, is not actually in the Greek text. In the NIV, I think it says, it happened. That there's no corresponding original Greek that, that goes for those words. Our English translators add that, so it sounds better, so it kind of rolls off the tongue and makes sense in our heads in English better. It's a gift that our translators do things like that. That's the first thing to note. The other thing is that in the original Greek, there is no punctuation 
in the Greek manuscripts. It's just one giant run-on sentence. The way that you find out where stuff ends is based on the endings of the words and the, and the verbs and different things like that. And so some scholars point out that it is actually possible to put the punctuation in such a way that we're missing this phrase that's not actually there. And so we, we start, this is the start of a new sentence, so we'll capitalize our S, that God's work might be displayed in him, comma, we'll lowercase our W. And so it would read that neither this man nor his parents sinned, period. That's the end of that conversation. So that God's works might be displayed in him, we must do the works of him who sent me while it's still day. So it takes the emphasis off of the man's suffering, and it puts the emphasis on the works that Jesus is going to do. One scholar said this, so when punctuated in this way, the text implies not that the man was born blind, so God's work may be revealed, but that Jesus had to carry out the work of God while it was day, so that the works of God may be revealed in this man. The emphasis is not on the suffering of the man, but, by, but on the work and the power of Jesus. That the emphasis is, it's not, hey, hey, I'm letting you suffer so that I can look good or so I can do something in your life. It's this recognition of saying, it's not this man's fault, it's not his parents' fault, there is pain, there is suffering, there is destruction in the world, and in spite of the suffering, I'm still going to work. In spite of what you're going through, and in spite of the pain, I will show up and I will enter the, into the pain and I will do something to change it. I'm here to do the works of the one who sent me, the works of the Father, and the works that Jesus comes to do, the works of the Father are to bring about an end to pain and suffering and evil once and for all. And it's in that work that finds its culmination on the cross that God is most glorified. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But so that the works of God may be displayed, we must do the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. I just want to live in this, this verse for another second here. And I never realized that until I was prepping for this message, this particular thing. What Jesus says in verse 4, he says, we... We must do the works. Like Jesus is going to be the one that actually heals the man. He's the one with the power to change things, but he includes his disciples in this. We have work to do. He's like, well, I'm still here because like, the, the cross is like in really short view. When he talks about got to do the works of him uh, while it's still day and night is coming, this is like my time on earth is, is short at this point. Jesus has got his face set towards the cross. He's like, but while we're here, let's get to work. We can't be wasting time. And it's interesting because the disciples are the ones that are asking Jesus, okay, there's something wrong. Whose fault is this? Is it his fault? Is it his parents' fault? And it's like, guys, you're missing it. I, we're not concerned about whose fault it was. You should be more concerned about what we're going to do about it. Like the existence for them and for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, the existence of human suffering and darkness and spiritual blindness is a call for us to work. It is not a call for us to sit around and pontificate and theorize and blame and try to figure out why exactly are things the way they are. And I think it should be this way. And I think it should be that way. It's a call for us to say, no, we are here to do the works of him who's now sending us. Right? Like these, these guys who have asked the question, whose fault is this? It's like stop standing around uh, arguing about the problem when you're standing next to the solution. And so often, like the church, we're just like standing around like, well, it's your fault and this person's fault and this group of people's fault and this is the way the, why, why the world is and this is what we should do about it, and this is what we should do about it. And we stand around and argue about all these things and it's like, man, but we, we, why are we standing around arguing about what's wrong with the world when we carry the solution with us? Like, man, the, the spirit of Jesus living within us that reveals who Jesus is to the world around us. It's like, let's go do the works of him who is sending us. So we must do the works of him who sent us while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. And then he says this. He says, um, as long as I'm in the world, again, talking about, he's like, my time here is kind of short. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. 
This is kind of a hinge point verse in this passage because this verse 5 here in chapter 9 ties what's going on here back to the previous chapters. Because in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this famous thing, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what Jesus is doing here in healing this blind man is tied into what we talked about the last time we were in John. That what's just happened was was the festival of tabernacles. It's this feast that the Jewish people have that is a celebration of God's deliverance and delivering them and walking with them through the wilderness. And during this feast and during this festival, one of the things that happens is they, they light these giant torches in the temple courtyard, and they can be seen for like miles around, and it lights up the night, and the Jewish people dance and celebrate all through the night, and the torches are meant to represent um, the, the, the presence of God, the fire of God, carrying them through the wilderness uh, in, in the Exodus kind of story. And Jesus shows up in that context in chapter 8 and says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the one that carries you through the wilderness. I'm your protection. I'm your provider. I'm all of the things that that you guys, you Jewish people celebrate. And and so that happens in in chapter 8. And then we get to chapter 9. He's like, this is what I've claimed about myself, and now I'm going to show you what it looks like. This is, I am the light of the world being played out in this man's life because he has spent his entire life in darkness. He has never seen the light. He was born blind. I'm the light of the world. And his darkness is is kind of manifesting in a physical way. But there's a deeper reality in which there's a spiritual darkness and there's a spiritual blindness. And out of a spiritual darkness and a spiritual blindness comes a physical darkness as well. A lot of times as Western people and in the Western church, we like to make a clear divide there and be like, well, there's there's what I would call real life in the physical world and my physical existence. And then there's faith and there's spiritual stuff over there. And I want to try to keep them as separate as possible. But there's a picture that Jesus gets at that is all throughout the scriptures that there is a a deeper darkness, there is a spiritual darkness, there is evil, there are these things, and it comes out in our day-to-day lives in a physical way. And so here he's going to heal a man's physical blindness, and it's going to be a pointer and an indicator to something deeper that he'll actually go on in the the rest of the chapter that we'll look at next week. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the solution to both physical and spiritual darkness. And this is what it looks like when the light of the world shows up in someone's life, someone who's walking in darkness, and the miracle happens. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. At which point, like, I would imagine the guy's like, sure, I will do that, because I just heard a guy go, and then I felt something on my face, and I'm like, yes, I will go and wash. Like, you just point me in the right direction because I'm still blind. And so he goes and washes, and he comes back seeing. A couple of things, like the, the whole mud on the eyes thing is a little bit weird, and there, there's some different theorizing as to what that is symbolic of. One of the things that becomes really important in the following verses is that Jesus is, is healing this guy. It's the Sabbath. Uh, and so this is going to be one of the things that gets him into trouble with the religious leaders yet again. They say he's breaking the Sabbath because not according to God's law, but there were these man-made traditions that said, yeah, actually spitting on the ground and making mud, that's considered work on the Sabbath. So it's going to be another thing, kind of like you know, ammo in the belt for them to be like, see, Jesus, you're a false prophet, and you're not who you say you are. And we'll see, we'll get into some of that next week. Um, but the important thing is, what, what the focus is, is this guy, his sight is restored. And what's fascinating about that is, it's actually kind of a, a very unique thing in the biblical story. There's not one instance of, of sight being restored in the Old Testament. And outside of the ministry of Jesus, the only time it happens in the New Testament is when Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, where he's temporarily blinded after his encounter with Jesus, and it comes back a couple days later. And so it's, it's not something that really happens, and yet in Jesus' ministry, 
the restoration of sight to the blind happens more than any other miracle. Like there's something about this, that Jesus, I'm here to give sight to the blind. And that is a deeper thing than just this blind man, but it's what it is symbolic of and representative of. The guy comes back seeing, and his neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? And some said, he's the one. And others said, no, nah, it just looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. I, I love some of these details like, that are found like, in the Gospels because it's just so real. It's like, they're just like, no, nah, it's not him. It couldn't be him. It's, it's him. It's really me. Guys, I'm telling you, it happened to me. And there's just this kind of banter that goes back and forth. And they continue the conversation. They asked him, well, then how are your eyes open? And he said, well, the man called Jesus, he made some mud. He spread it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so when I went and washed, I received my sight. It's like, I, I don't really know. Like, he just told me, and I did it, and it turned, like, I don't know. All I know is blind, and now I see, and it was weird, but here I am. And they're like, well, where is he? I don't know, he said. And that's just like the end of it. And you're like, well, that was strange, but that's just what happened. They're like, he's like, I don't know. Like, again, I was blind, like, 10 minutes ago, and now, or however long it was, and, and now I can see, and I don't know where he's at, but I'm, my life has been changed. And that's where we'll pick things up next week um, with the rest of, of chapter 9, but this account of Jesus healing the blind man brings into focus and into uh, attention and brings us into that tension, the question of what is it that's wrong with the world, and what is God doing about it? Like, like, it's clear that something is wrong. It's clear that something is broken, that things are not as they should be. Recognized right off the bat by the disciples. This guy's blind. It shouldn't be that way. What happened? And it, it makes us enter into that uncomfortable place that says, that's my reality. That is, that is human existence. That is what this world is like. It's suffering. It's pain. Something is wrong. What is that? And what's the solution to that? And as I said at the beginning, every, every worldview has to address that. There's a problem. What is the problem? What is the solution? And from a Christian perspective, the message of Jesus comes along and says, what's wrong with the world is sin. And it's complicated. It's complex. We try to make it simple sometimes, and we do people a great disservice when we do that. That there are, there are layers to this. I said before, it's personal and it's corporate. It's individual and it's collective. It's systems. It's nature. It's nurture. It's all of it. That there's an infection that has spread and it affects everything. And so from the Jesus perspective, that's what's wrong with the world. And what I cannot answer is the question of why does God allow that? I don't have a good answer for that. I don't have a, well, you know, if you, just these three things are exactly why God allows it. Why does he heal sometimes and other times he doesn't? Or, or an issue of God's timing. Why does it take so long? Why doesn't he do it now? Why do, I don't have an answer for any of that. I don't have an answer for why God allows suffering. But what I can answer what I think is the more important thing is what is he doing about it? The answer to what is he doing about suffering is found in the person of Jesus. That is the answer. That is the solution, that he is the light of the world. He is the light in the darkness who gives sight to the blind. He is the one who does the works of the Father. And the works of the Father are to redeem and to restore all things. One of the things that's so beautiful about the Christian faith and it's so, so different about it than anything else is that at the core of it, there's this picture, there's this portrait of a God who doesn't, doesn't ignore suffering, who isn't flippant about it, who, who doesn't try to say it's no big deal, but at the heart of the Christian faith, there is a God who steps into our suffering, who suffers with us, who takes on human flesh and experiences everything it is to be human, the hurt, the betrayal, the heartache, the pain, the hunger, every ounce of human existence, Jesus experienced 
And then he brings all of the suffering, all of the sin, all of the shame, all of the evil of me and you and every person to ever have lived. He puts that upon himself. And it's through the the perfect life of Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that we see the solution to what's actually ailing us. This is the answer. This is what heals brokenness and darkness and blindness, both spiritual and physical. And yet there's also this thing that we live in, that we're in this in-between time. Because pain and suffering, brokenness, are still a part of my life and still a part of yours. And, and, and like we see playing out in the biblical narrative, I was like, there's, there's aspects of that in which it's like, it's internal, it's external, it's in the world around me. There's brokenness and darkness like within me and the thoughts that I have and the sins that I struggle with. And yet then there's my relationships and the the evil of the world. Like it's still there. And we're like, Jesus, I thought you'd done something about this. And much in the same way that, as I said earlier, that there's a a deeper underlying spiritual and and kind of um, supernatural darkness that, that bleeds out into the physical world. The solution that Jesus offers operates in the same way that there is a healing and a restoration of sight and a restoration to the broken that first happens on a supernatural and spiritual level, the victory of Jesus over death, over sin and the grave. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus has ushered in that healing in a spiritual and supernatural aspect. And it will someday fully bleed over into our physical reality as well. Sometimes it happens now and it happens in moments and it's beautiful and we celebrate it. But the hope of the Christian faith and new creation and resurrection is someday that healing and that victory of Jesus will fully infiltrate every aspect of our existence. But now we find ourselves in this in-between. We find ourselves living in the meantime. And it's hard. And it's painful. But there's hope. And this is where I said, you know, it's not, there's, there's nothing that makes us feel better about this. But it does point us to something that, okay, I can hold on to this in the midst of the pain. And the beautiful invitation that we also have if you're a follower of Jesus is that his followers, we are now empowered by his spirit, living in us, changing us, moving us, moving us towards the broken around us. We're empowered by his spirit to carry his healing and his light to a broken and blind world. Much like Jesus said to the disciples there with the blind man, we must do the works of him who sent us. So we are now sent with the hope and the healing and the message of Jesus to say, okay, yes, it's painful, and yes, it may not go away in this life, but there is one who heals, there is one who restores sight, there is one who will one day fix all of this. And so, man, if you're going through some difficulty right now, just hold on. Hold on. One day healing will come. It may come in this life. It might not. But it will come. For all of us that are followers of Jesus, let's go. Let's take it with us. There's so much brokenness. There's so much pain. There's so much hurt. There's so much hunger. And we have the message of hope and healing. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God that did not leave us in our brokenness. You did not leave us in our blindness. You did not leave us in the darkness. But you stepped into our suffering and pain. Jesus, you know what it is to be human. You know what it is to feel these things and experience these things. You took our suffering, our sin, our shame upon yourself on the cross, that you died for our sins, you rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death once and for all, and we praise you for that. God, I pray in this place for healing for people, 
for restoration, for hope, for wholeness. God, I pray that in, the, in their physical lives and things that we are going through, I pray that you would heal. God, I pray that even in the midst of the pain, and if we don't see healing soon, we would hold to you and trust that it will come when you return. God, I pray you would empower us by your spirit to go out into the world, into the places where we work and where we go to school and where we live our lives, that you would empower us to carry your light and your healing into a blind and broken world. I pray this in Jesus' name.